HTML is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And this is MCU.HTML, and we're going to talk about GOTG. Yeah. This was easily, when it came out, the least known Marvel property they tried to push into a film. Absolutely. First inkling that we got of the potential for this film franchise came with Kevin Feige mentioning offhand that it was a property that they could develop down the line, and it wasn't until two years later that it was officially announced. I think one of the things about running with Guardians of the Galaxy is in many ways the Marvel Cosmic is this sort of corner of the Marvel Galaxy that everybody acknowledges and they're all kind of okay with it. But unless you're a Marvel Cosmics person, you're not really a Marvel Cosmics person. And this was them changing the game completely. Guardians of the Galaxy had recently seen a very successful run in the comics by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning. They did the Annihilation work. They, they did really incredibly popular, well-received work. And here we have this team that's not their team come in. It was like, oh, wow, look, Marvel finally did something great with their cosmic stuff and it's popular again. Let's not do that. And they come up with this completely unrelated version of Guardians. And immediately that becomes the Guardians in the comics, even though that had never been the Guardians. So what we're about to talk about is a movie franchise that took the comics from, frankly, even intra-comics obscurity in some ways, and pushed it center stage, not just for its own film, but for the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a whole. You know, it's funny that you mentioned Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, because one of the things that I specifically discovered in my behind-the-scenes journey is the fact that the original script for Guardians, written by a woman named Nicole Perlman, actually was more based on that take on the Guardians of the Galaxy. And it wasn't until the now controversial director James Gunn came in and rewrote her work that the characters we now know were put in. I could talk at length about the ways the Marvel Cinematic Universe had to be different from the Marvel Comic Universe in order for it to thrive. Trying to too entangle the films which need to be these self-encapsulated two-hour experiences, and trying to, to take that from these 50, 60, 70-year comic stories, it can be just about impossible to boil that down in a way that everyone's going to like. So I'm glad that they decided to do something very different with Guardians, as much as I love the classic Guardians and comic Guardians. I do think the thing that needs to be more talked about is how completely they disregarded some of the characters in favor of a singular voice of humor. In many ways, all of the Guardians share being cranky, and that's kind of generally their single personality trait. They're cranky, they secretly have hearts of gold, and they hide their pain through quips. Yeah, I definitely agree. I definitely think that it is a problem of mono voce between these characters, and... I'm entertained by this film. I want to go into this saying that first specifically. I don't dislike this film, and I think some of the things that I'd had a problem with Guardians over for a while now, I feel better about having done this watch. 
but the cracks are also more evident. The ways in which this is just a ripoff of Farscape is more evident, and I enjoy having that in the MCU, but I don't think that that is enough to build what could still potentially become the Marvel Cosmic Cinematic Branch around. And as much as I appreciate you saying it just rips off Farscape, I think it actually rips off a number of things. Oh, totally. And I think that's important to understand. They were bringing a franchise that had never been brought to the masses to the masses. I think Iron Man was the last property that really benefited from this. Because even if people didn't know much about Thor, he was still fucking Thor. He still had the long blonde hair and the hammer and the have at thee. So... Thor was still Thor. Captain America, you still have some preconceived notions of Captain America. But when the Guardians of the Galaxy came out, I don't know that you could have had much of a preconceived notion. I think half the people kept going, wait, Chris Pratt was cast as Star War? Who? Star War? Yeah, and having characters like Groot and Rocket Raccoon, especially through audiences at first, it was a very strange thing. All anyone could really say about Guardians before it came out was... That's going to be the alien movie. It's the movie with aliens. It's off in space. It's aliens. It's alien movie. That's all most people really understood about it. And I think they just sort of chalked that up to comiciness. Oh, that's just comics. I have to acknowledge that this is by far the longest preamble we have done on any episode before actually discussing the film in any way. And I think that that is partially because this film represented a first for the Marvel Cinematic Universe in so many ways. The Avengers was about weaving together four independent heroes, which became six independent heroes, along with two mentor figures in Nick Fury and Agent Hill. And it it became about this big picture, eight, nine people, because if you want, you can throw a fucking Coulson. And you have so many heroes and plot lines that already existed coming together when the Avengers began. Even Captain America the Winter Soldier, which we discussed, can be viewed as sort of an Avengers light film. Even that film came with the existing baggage of so many of the characters. Here, we were asked to care about five direct team members, two sort of villains who would eventually be a little bit redeemed, and then a handful of other people with nothing before it to give us a reason to give a fuck. I don't believe I said this at the top of the episode, but this is the first non-Avengers Marvel property to be developed by Walt Disney Pictures, and it was true at the time, and I believe it's still true now. I don't Unless I'm mistaken, there hasn't been an MCU film since centered around a hero that has never been an Avenger. I believe that's a fair statement. Now, I need to jump and dial into something about that. One of the things that makes discussing the ways that the comics and the TV shows are different a little difficult is there's a joke that in the 1970s, anybody could have been an Avenger. Anybody could have just come and gone from that fucking mansion and you wouldn't have known the fucking difference. There were like 250 Avengers and... Eight of them were called together at a time to be a team, oftentimes. And then when Avengers became a hit, everybody became an Avenger. There were the new Avengers, the secret Avengers, the old Avengers. There were the dark Avengers. And by the old Avengers, I mean they relaunched the mighty Avengers to be a more classic team. And Brian Michael Bendis, in 2005, launched the new Avengers, which was a bit of a Okay, so let's just backtrack and give a little bit of comic stuff. Now, normally we try to keep this very separate from the comics property, but this is one where it's a little tricky. The Avengers, as they had more or less always been known, came to a screeching halt around issue 504 when Brian Bendis had Avengers disassembled in which the Scarlet Witch lost her mind and used her reality-altering powers to destroy the Avengers. Okay. 
The Avengers launched again six months later as the new Avengers, featuring mostly people who had never been Avengers for more than a hot second. It was Captain America and Iron Man, along with Wolverine and Spider-Man, as well as the mysterious Spider-Woman who had been missing from action for a significant period of time, and then, oh right, Sentry and Ronin. We'll discuss Sentry another time if we ever have to, though Ronin many of you have heard rumblings of is going to be Hawkeye's identity in the fourth Avengers movie. Well, that's not this Ronin. This Ronin was originally going to be Daredevil, then was going to be Elektra, and then ultimately became Echo, Daredevil's love interest from a later volume whose backstory was imprinted onto Jennifer Garner's Elektra. I can't even. It's just too much. Point of the story, starting in 2005, the Avengers became an opportunity for Marvel to address high-profile heroes coming together in a very crossover eventy kind of way. Everyone became an Avenger for at least six, eight, ten issues. It was a great way to sell books. The word Avengers meant big seller. So we are about to get to an age where a lot of people are Avengers who really would never have been considered Avengers before. Doctor Strange would have never been considered an Avenger before. But it is true that prior to his film coming out, Doctor Strange led the new Avengers from his Sanctum Sanctorum. That's absolutely canon. So the Avengers are a difficult property to discuss, the actual characters that belong in that Avengers category. Word up. Okay, but back to the Guardians of the Galaxy for one second. I do want to say that this group of Guardians did start existing in 2008, but in their membership ranks included Adam Warlock. Adam Warlock is kind of the, well, I guess he's the Captain America of the Guardians Avengers, if you know what I'm trying to say. He's the character for whom so much of this universe is based around the actions of and the canon of. He is a focal point. It's his job to stop the Infinity Stones and protect the universe. So much of it is him. And he's actually an android who comes to life with the magic of an Infinity Stone. So you might notice that his characterization has been given to Vision, who has a similar but different story in the comics. These characters existed a decade apart. It was okay to do similar stories touching on moments. So, yes, I do accept that it's absolutely true that this group of Guardians did start being the Guardians in 2008 in the comics, but the lack of Phyla, Vel, or Nova, or Adam Warlock so greatly changes the discussion that it's hard to reconcile this team of Guardians with the 2018. I get that. I know my is So, okay, that's enough behind the pages. Kevo, I think I'm about to throw it over to you. Let's BTS, G-O-T-G. Nice. I like your letters. All right. Well, I'm going to start with cinematographer because this is literally the only category that has nothing to do with James Gunn whatsoever. Ben Davis, who is a frequent collaborator with Matthew Vaughn doing Stardust and Kick-Ass and Martin McDonough. He did the cinematography for three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri and was nominated for a BAFTA and a Satellite Award. This is his first of four MCU collaborations. He's also going to be the cinematographer for Dumbo, so what up? 
And shout out to all my lesbian friends. He was the cinematographer for the film Imagine Me and You, starring Piper Perabo, Lena Headley, and Anthony Head. Also, just a random non sequitur, one of the things I love so much about doing this project is that it exposes me to the most random fucking things on the planet. This guy's first job was a film called Miranda, which was a random romantic thriller where Christina Ricci played a con artist and also had John Hurt, John Sim, and Kyle MacLachlan and featured music by Doctor Who composer Murray Gold. What are some of these movies that I am discovering sometimes? I don't even know. It's like there's these little magical nexuses of your geekdom just out there waiting for you. There are. There really are. Every single other category, in in a manner of speaking, is touched by James Gunn going forward because composer Tyler Bates was brought onto this project due to having worked extensively with James Gunn in the past. He did the score for James Gunn's script for Dawn of the Dead. He scored James Gunn's directorial debut, Slither, and his semi-pornographic web series, James Gunn's PG Porn. Despite starting on campy B-movies like Tammy and the T-Rex in 1994 and Shriek, if you know what I did last Friday the 13th in 2000, he went on to do some pretty prolific work. He worked with Zack Snyder doing the score for Watchmen in 300, and he worked for Rob Zombie doing the score for Halloween in 2007 and Grindhouse, and he scored the John Wick trilogy. One of the most interesting things I found about Tyler Bates's work on this project as I went into reading about it is he worked unbelievably closely with James Gunn on the music and the themes for Guardians of the Galaxy, like to an unprecedented amount before cinematography started and some of it even during shooting, like James Gunn crafted the music around filming, whereas normally scoring of a film is done after the final product is submitted. It's just a really unusual process. He ended up working like 100-hour weeks with his team, and I really like the score for this film. I genuinely do. I don't think that it comes across that it required 100-hour work weeks to, to get this done. I don't think this score is any more significant than The Avengers or Captain America. I don't know. I specifically think it's less significant. I honestly don't walk away from Guardians with the Guardians theme stuck in my head. I feel like I just hear like an Epcot 80s version of the Avengers theme. I kind of get what you mean. I see where it feels almost like an extrapolation of the Avengers theme, especially because it is a team theme, so it needs to be that sort of bombastic. I do get the Guardians theme in my head, but... It's really mostly like the major refrain of the theme, and there aren't any other pieces of score that I think stick out in my brain. The scene where Groot forms the giant wicker ball around them, I definitely think that piece of score very strongly reminds me of Epcot music, like you were saying. But it's, if anything, the only other one that I can think of off the top of my head because we literally just watched the movie. I think the work is great, but it just feels like so much dedication went in to that. And a big part of the problem is the movie had no expectations, like we said. They gave this movie room to be anything it wanted. So things like 100-hour work weeks on score were okay. Yeah. It really seems in line with everything that I've been reading about James Gunn, though. He seems to be a very specific man with a very specific vision and so I guess we might as well come around to that. The script and direction were both done by him. The original draft of the Guardians of the Galaxy script was written by a woman named 
Nicole Perlman. She came up through the Marvel screenwriting program in 2009 and when offered her pick of several lesser-known properties to work with, she chose Guardians of the Galaxy, much to the surprise of her superiors, but she was very invested. She spent years doing research on Guardians of the Galaxy and making sure that all that information going into the script was right. In late 2011, she was asked to create another draft, and then in early 2012, James Gunn came in and basically took over. He wasn't even the last person to have his hands on it, though. Marcus and McFeely of the Captain America and Avengers finale franchises did a script polish as well. Yeah, James Gunn isn't really super thrilled about sharing credit with Nicole Perlman on this script, which I thought was... It comes across as sort of petty. He specifically said... It's not about the same stuff, but that's how the WGA works. They like first writers an awful lot. You know, a lot of shade I'm seeing from these creators at other creators. And I'm like, I don't know. It's it's it, it just a lot of his statements about the film that I've been reading rub me the wrong way. Uh, he was cranky about having to include Thanos. He called those scenes the hardest to crack and said that he felt having Thanos be in the scene was more helpful to the MCU than it was to his film. And yet still wanted Thanos, but he wanted it without, like, quote-unquote, belittling the actual antagonist of the film, which is Ronan, which is why he has Ronan kill the other so early in the film, because he's a character, quote, who's obviously very powerful, even in comparison to Loki, and then we see Ronan wipe his ass with him, so that I liked, but even that was sort of difficult, because it played as funnier when I first wrote it. And the humor didn't work so much. So it was just a very, like, pass the blame on what didn't work in my film sort of attitude that I saw from him. It does sound like he wants to benefit from the other films without having to do any of the work. He wants Ronan to be a great threat as working for Thanos without needing to contribute back to the Thanos mythos. Thanos mythos, that's tricky. And I think that does kind of come across in the film a little bit. It is a really cool film and it has a really unique aesthetic and it's a lot of fun, but it almost makes sense that this film doesn't play well with the other films when you think about the way the characters behave in Avengers 3. Yeah, no, I see that. And I think it's in studying James Gunn, he's one of the first directors that I've come into in this project that I've had to do research on that I've seen who seems to be very off the beaten path from a lot of these other directors. I was also shocked to learn how extensive the Gunn family is. I knew, obviously, about James Gunn and his brother, Sean, who plays a character in this, who we both know and love from Gilmore Girls. I didn't realize that there is, like, a whole freaking Gunn clan. His other brother, Matt, was a political writer for Real Time with Bill Maher. His other brother, Brian, and their cousin, Mark, are script writers who created the MTV band together... They wrote the TV movie and created and wrote several episodes of the TV show. Okay. I feel like Together ultimately finds itself a footnote in parody television, but in some ways there's threads of Together here in The Guardians, this sort of focus on schlocky (laughs) pop music, bringing together people because they each have to unite to form this one concept, and they're even being brought together to fight a central bad guy who was just too powerful in an evil band. I'm not saying that like 
Guardians is just a ripoff of Together. But it's sort of funny to see the parallels that this family write to multiple things. Plus, I doubt any of the characters in this movie can do math well, so there's that, too. Yeah, they've done other stuff together as well. They wrote the script for Journey to the Mysterious Island. They have an upcoming film, Brightburn, that unfortunately, due to the James Gunn controversy, Sony has withdrawn doing promotional stuff for, so that sucks for them. Okay, I can't seem to find a ton of corroboration on this one, but there is theoretically another gun brother named Patrick, who was the former executive VP with Artisan Entertainment and like worked on the punisher film featuring tom jane but i can't seem to find any real strong like connections it's not in like the little corner box in any of their wikipedia articles so i don't know anything exactly about patrick gunn could be related could be the same name who knows for sure so if any of you have the smoking gun on patrick gunn just shoot an email over to mcu.html so we can get to the bottom of this gun gate yeah, for real. But so they're like this family of upper middle class white boys from Missouri who went to a Jesuit high school and all ended up in the entertainment industry. I didn't know James Gunn used to be married to Jenna Fisher and that they met through Sean Gunn when he did plays in high school with her. What a small world. Jenna Fisher played Pam on The Office opposite Jim. Jim, who was played by John Krasinski, who almost played Captain America. Yeah, it's just all these, like, people. What a tiny world. I wonder if that's going to figure into Endgame. <laughs> anyway, so unlike a lot of the directors that we've seen in the MCU so far, who come from backgrounds of action-adventure and those sort of things, James Gunn's background is a little more controversial to start. His idol and mentor was director lloyd kaufman of the toxic avenger franchise and james gunn's earliest work was working for troma entertainment a lot of those types of projects his first produced script was a troma-esque adaptation of romeo and juliet and for those of you who are not familiar with the concept it's a lot of gross out sexual violence humor movie 41 james gunn was involved in the production of that film that sort of film he did a few things that sort of indicated that he might be good for a project like this he did a film in 2000 called the specials that i'd never heard of until now about the sixth or seventh most popular group of superheroes in the world had you heard of this no thomas hayden church paget brewster James Gunn himself, Rob Lowe, Sean Gunn, Jamie Kennedy, Kelly Cofield from In Living Color, like a lot of people. And he wrote the two modern adaptations of Scooby-Doo, the Sarah Michelle Gellar, Freddie Prinze Jr. franchise. It's so interesting. Some of the stuff this guy has in his filmography and yet the way fanboy culture so very clings to him. Like, how do you mean? Fanboy culture was very about the very stylistic directors coming on to take over the marvel cinematic universe there was so much attention put on edgar wright's ant-man and james gunn taking over guardians of the galaxy there was so much attention put on these voices and their narrative choices and who these directors and filmmakers were that that's the real reason everybody's freaking out that he's not going to be a part of guardians of the galaxy 3 it's almost weird though because it makes it seem like people are more upset that the guy behind guardians is leaving than the people in front of the camera are I mean, as a creator myself, I, on the one hand, appreciate it, but I especially think because this is a shared universe, 
this isn't one person's sandbox and the toys don't belong to him. As much as I enjoy elements of the story he's told, I also haven't enjoyed other elements. And frankly, I don't think that I would be heartbroken to see someone take over the franchise. I was never particularly attached to James Gunn's vision. I enjoyed it, but I wouldn't say I was attached to it. I also have to ask myself, so when was James Gunn removed? July 2018. I have to ask how much production, post-production, where they were in Captain Marvel at the time, because Captain Marvel is the most affiliated with Guardians of the Galaxy of any film with the exception of Endgame. It's going to reuse some of the villains from Guardians of the Galaxy. It's going to cast an eye back out into space and the cosmos and the Kree. So I am left wondering if Captain Marvel represents part of the decision to remove James Gunn. By no means are we trying to vilify the man, but it does sound like he has some trouble playing well with others. Endgame and Captain Marvel, both films that require extensive amount of sandbox sharing. They might have been a little difficult for James Gunn. While we're going to save getting into the controversy that ultimately removed James Gunn for the next Guardians because they share pretty much everything in common from the behind the scenes to most of the cast to huge elements of the plot... I want to just touch on the fact that James Gunn's removal does seem to be part of a bigger picture than just some of the tweets he once posted. I'm disinclined to believe that Marvel would have severed ties with someone who had gone out of their way to do everything possible to play well. I completely agree. In my research for this episode, I came over bits and pieces about that controversy, but especially because what we're talking about was in 2014, and that happened in 2018. I definitely think we're going to save some of the discussion over that for the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 episode. And while normally we would stop our discussion of the behind the scenes there, I do think we need to discuss one other interesting element that sets apart the production of Guardians of the Galaxy from the other Marvel Cinematic Universe films. While true, Iron Man and Captain America do wear partially concealing masks, we get a lot of Iron Man underneath the helmet, and we do get a lot of Steve outside of the mask. In fact, the Avengers, with the exception of when Hulk is transformed, all look pretty much like themselves the entire time. And even then, Ruffalo's Hulk is beginning to look so much like Mark Ruffalo. Sometimes I'm like disappointed when I see Mark Ruffalo. Not true facts. This was the first time a significant portion of the main cast did not bear their likeness. Chris Pratt had a complete body transformation, so he was unlike any time you'd ever seen him before. Zoe Saldana, completely covered in green makeup. Drax isn't meant to look terribly human so it's not surprising that dave batista is barely recognizable and then groot and rocket are both animated for all intents and purposes that's bradley cooper and vin diesel two very well liked very sexy very attractive men being unrecognizable in this major franchise although it is important to note that then that actually does leave them both in play to play physical characters later on yeah absolutely 
It's really interesting because even while Lee Pace isn't maybe the best known guy in the world outside of Pushing Daisies, he's completely unrecognizable in this. And I know I've seen every episode of her on Doctor Who, and I know I've seen all of her stuff in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but I really have trouble understanding how both Nebula and Amy Pond are Karen Gillan. Yeah, no, I definitely see that. I don't think that her best performance is this film. I think that her performance as Nebula gets better each film. But she certainly disappeared into the role for this one, which good for her. She deserves that because she did shave her head for this. So, And while Jaiman Hansu, Glenn Close, and John C. Riley are predominantly recognizable throughout the film, the roles they play are really minor. In fact, that is one of my most major complaints about this film. I do really recognize that they put a lot of diversity into their casting choices, but it's unfortunate that the only human of color who we see extensively or human-like character is evil i don't care for that and i feel like that was the same case in thor the dark world Mm -hmm. and i didn't appreciate it there either Mm -hmm. if we're going to be going to fantastical places and we're going to be seeing a great span of races in terms of species race not just race among humans i would really expect to see a little bit more effort put into showing not just white humans, and not just white humes. You know, I'm jumping way far ahead, but the climax of the film after Ronan's ship crashes and he's threatening the crowd of Xandarians around him, I couldn't help noticing, it caught my eye, one of the alien humanoids in the crowd was this, like, yellow humanoid. And the Xandarian, most of the people are either looking like Terrans or they're red, And it really caught my eye that there was this yellow humanoid alien because I was thinking about how Ronan is threatening this planet, but there's non-Zandarians on here. And it really struck me that, holy shit, they thought to insert a yellow alien into this crowd, but do you know how hard it is to spot a black person in a crowd sometimes? Are you serious? Well, I do applaud the decision to cast actors of color in the roles of Drax and Gamora, Kevo's research actually pointed out something really positive and something kind of not great. Kevo, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, what I found is that actually Drax's pool of actors that were being looked at to cast him were all men of color. It was possibly going to be Jaiman Hansu. It was possibly going to be Isaiah Mustafa, who many of us know as the Old Spice I'm on a Horse guy. Shad Gaspard, who is a Black Panther stunt performer, auditioned as well. And a little-known actor named Jason Momoa. I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, oh, oh, he was in that, that movie, uh, The Waterboy. Yeah, I don't know. I think I just heard something about him ripping up books. That's all I know about that guy. Anyway. I also believe you had some information about Gamora. Yeah, the Gamora information was a little bit more disheartening. Most of the f- actresses that they looked at for Gamora actually were white. Uh, Olivia Wilde turned down the role. Adrian Palicki, who eventually was on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., auditioned. The MMA fighter who played Angel Dust in Deadpool auditioned for the role as well. And Rosario Dawson, you know, okay, that's a person of color that you're looking to cast. And she did eventually get a role with Marvel Studios on Marvel Netflix, and that was really awesome. I agree. I really loved her turn as Claire. Seeing Night Nurse consistently in the Marvel Cinematic Netflix universe was incredible. Yeah, absolutely. But then, like, every single alternate voice actor choice for Rocket Raccoon was a white man. They were looking at Adam Sandler, David Tennant, Jim Carrey, and H. John Benjamin. 
So I love and hate half of those equally. I want to point out that you actually found something about the casting on Star-Lord. And this is one of those things. We've pointed out that there are certain like inconsistencies or almost inexplicable, unexplainable magicals in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I am starting to think that one of the focal points of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is Zachary Levy. Yeah, no, it's true. I was looking into the actors that were being looked at for the role of Star-Lord. Some of the choices were strange, like Eddie Redmayne and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Those feel like a little bit more of a spindly Star-Lord than I would have expected. They also looked at Jensen Ackles, who had been considered for Captain America at one point. I do want to jump in with nearly every leading man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe has transformed their body top to bottom. I would make that comment of women in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but we all know that women are never allowed to be out of peak shape in Hollywood. So the women, their body transformation isn't as paid attention to. It's how do they keep so fit? How does, how does, um, I almost said Scarlett Johansson witch. <laughs> how does Scarlett Johansson witch, <clears throat> god damn, okay. <clears throat> how does Scarlett Johansson witch stay so fit to keep being the black Scarlett? Yeah, and what underwear do they wear under their costume? What's really funny, and I think it's almost too funny, is the Avenger best known for their physique would probably be the Hulk. And Mark Ruffalo does not need to be in any kind of shape to play the most muscular, strongest superhero. That is actually exceptionally funny. He looks like he, you know, stays fit, but he's certainly not in competition with even his contemporaries, like... Robert Downey Jr. and Paul Rudd, who are much closer to his age than Chris Evans or Chris Pratt, but he's not as fit as these other 50-year-olds. And he doesn't really need to be. It's something that I've always applauded Robert Downey Jr. on, because he doesn't need to be as fit as he stays to stay Tony Stark. They could fix whatever unsightlies they want to fix with whatever digital trick they want to fix it with. So it's really interesting that he stays pretty fit as well. Oh, no, we did a tangent. I didn't say the thing. Bring us on back, buddy. So to bring us on back, one of the names that I found on the casting list for Star-Lord was Zachary Levy. And it obviously struck a bell in my head because we just saw Zachary Levy in Thor The Dark World. And so I looked at the dates of when they were casting and I realized that it was basically the month that Thor was going into production that they brought in Zachary Levy to read for Star-Lord. And frankly, that makes a ton of fucking sense. They were already recasting the role of Fandral for the second Thor movie, and if they liked Zachary Levy enough, they might as well pull him out of that one and give him a bigger role in the MCU. Absolutely, since he hadn't played Fandral in the first film due to a conflict filming anyway, and the role went to Josh Dallas, it wouldn't have been too weird to just not see him as Fandral a second time. Yeah, for real. But it's so weird when you see stuff like that. And you're like, no, but that's that's friggin' impossible. If you heard that from a different source, they'd be like, there's no way this is true. But weird stuff like that happens all the time. The almosts surrounding this movie are so fascinating the way they re-intersect with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like, there were a number of directors that were eyed for this movie who went on to be connected with other films. Yeah, Peyton Reed and the directing duo of Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, who went on to direct the Ant-Man films and Captain Marvel, respectively, were considered for Guardians of the Galaxy as well back in... I don't have a date on that. 
hey, no, that's totally cool. But so then that makes me wonder, <laughs> that makes me wonder what the alternate universe, what the MCAU would be for the Nicole Perlman feature directed by the passed over directors who would later go on to do their own films. Mm, mm. Okay, so it seems like it's literally not possible to talk about a team movie in one episode. Although, Kevo, I do feel like you had a really interesting point about how this isn't a team movie like The Avengers is, but rather is like a team solo film. Yeah, you know, the Guardians of the Galaxy are not individually among themselves superheroes. The Guardians of the Galaxy are a unit, whereas The Avengers franchise is a team-up of heroes who carry franchises individually i wouldn't i wouldn't see a drax movie and a lot of people say they would but they're liars i really agree i think that the future of the guardians of the galaxy franchise is going to be really nebulous because we have this weird impasse where a lot of the actors say they won't come back and some of them maybe sound a little bit more fiduciarily sound and i don't want to sound like a bad guy and i'm not being i'm not being sizes or anything but there was a recent image of chris pratt and he's not quite in star lord shape and the only reason i think that's of note is because that means he's not expecting to film anything star lord in the next few months and to contextualize what you're saying though Think about the jokes that were made at his expense in Infinity War when he was still unbelievably fit and they were talking about how he was starting to look out of shape. And this is Chris Pratt, you know, not necessarily Parks and Rec season five shape, but definitely not in peak Star-Lord shape either. So it's significant to know, especially from you, Nico, who knows how much work goes into getting back into that kind of shape. If he's looking like that, he must not think he's filming any anytime soon. And there's another interesting layer because, yeah, it really is that these physical schedules that these superheroes have to keep to get these superhero bodies when they're really actors, not superheroes. You know, Chris Hemsworth has said he's ready to walk away from Thor because it's really, really hard. I kind of think the only place the Guardians crew could go is maybe into the Thor direction if everything really is being shaken up as much as everything seems to be shaken up. We still don't know enough about what's coming after Endgame to really make any of this speculation. There was a recent image online uh, for S.H.I.E.L.D. and many people seem to think that the image from S.H.I.E.L.D. indicates that there will be status quo changes to the Marvel Universe after Endgame in a bit more of a retcon than new development sort of direction so who even really knows i completely completely agree and you know you mentioned thor don't forget all the alien creatures that were introduced in thor i mentioned in our one shot episode that kevin feige talked about the potential of meek and korg from thor ragnarok getting a one shot or something like that a character like that could easily be written into the guardians of the galaxy team rocket is still alive and groot is pretty easy to not have to rely on an actor for so as long as we have some sort of familiar face in the next film you know that's part of it being a team film the team can change it really can 
And much like the team changed, the expectations for what we are going to cover this episode changed. So it looks like this week you guys got Guardians the Origins. Next week it looks like we're going to get to talking about the movie. Until then, Kevo, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. You can check out our awesome comic, Kid Riot, as well as, for the first time ever, back our Kickstarter. Kid Riot Comics is launching an enamel pin Kickstarter where you can get your hands on a Pride Riot badge. Wapow! It's an awesome deal. It's a great Kickstarter. Go check it out. You can get the link from our website at kidriotcomics.com or from our page on Facebook at facebook.com slash kidriotcomics. So keep a lookout for our awesome Kickstarter and get yourselves a Pride Enamel badge. You can also check out the rest of our comic universe at kidriotcomics.com, as well as a number of other podcasts that we get to be lucky enough to be on on the network, like Now and Again or X's for Podcast. So check those out at cageclub.me. As far as me, you can find me on Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. All right. So until we actually get to guarding some galaxies, we'll see ya. Frell yeah.